0: Welcome back to The Durst Show. As you know, usually when I speak about a subject, I know what I'm going to say. I have an opinion and I'm gonna state it very strongly. Tonight, I'm gonna speak about an issue that I'm just not so sure about and I'd be interested in your input. I'm sure about one aspect of it, but I'm not so sure about whether or not um, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, should have gone to uh, Taiwan. Let me make clear my views on Taiwan. I think Taiwan is a wonderful, great democracy, and America should support their remaining uh, democracy. I favor the two-state solution. Um, There should be China, and there should be uh, Taiwan, just because they were once part of one country doesn't mean that, quote, the territorial integrity of China. You know, good marriage is good, but good divorce is is just as important and so many countries, India, Pakistan, the former Yugoslavia, have broken up into component parts and it's been generally much better. So my preferred solution uh, would always be Taiwan should be an independent country, it should be have status uh, all over the world, at the UN, everywhere else. That's not what the world has been saying. The world is afraid of China. So the one China policy, the one state solution has been the one that has been accepted, including by the United States and um, most uh, European and other uh, countries in the world. That's a mistake, I think, but it's a mistake. It's water water over the dam or under the bridge, and uh, that's not going to be reversed. So, so the question is, with that stated goal and with America's policy of deliberate ambiguity um, about what would happen if China invaded Taiwan, which it very likely uh, may do, particularly with the world distracted by uh, Ukraine, what would the United States do? Well, President Biden said we would come to the defense of Taiwan. Then the White House pulled back on it and said, no, 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 we, we believe in strategic ambiguity. We're not going to tell them what we're going to do uh, in the event of a military attack on, on, on Taiwan. Uh, there has been no military attack as Nancy Pelosi landed in her military jet, which I'm sure is secured by anti-rocket devices, um, Chinese communist jets basically flew around Taiwan in a, in a show of, of strength and probably violated the sovereignty, because they don't believe in it, of, of, of Taiwan. They crossed the middle ground of the strait. That separates Taiwan from China, which generally... They stay on the the Chinese side of that strait. So I don't know whether Pelosi was right or wrong. Uh, On the one hand, um, I support her support for the Taiwanese uh, people. Uh, On the other hand, I don't want to see a provocation. China is too strong. It's the second or third strongest country in the world, the United States, and then there's Russia and China. Um, nobody knows the exact military capabilities of both. They're both capable of destroying the entire world, as is the United States with its nuclear uh, arsenal. Let's just hope and pray that Iran doesn't join that uh, nuclear club anytime in the, in the future. But uh, was it a provocation or was, uh, was it the right thing to do? It's the first high ranking American official to go to Taiwan uh, since, I think, 1997 when the former Republican Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, went there with little fanfare and little protest. This was very provocative, although they say it was a secret trip. Everybody knew about it. It's the typical Washington, D.C. secret. And the President of the United States made no secret about the fact that he didn't support it. Um, According to the New York Times today, the uh, White House put lots of pressure on Pelosi and on her staff not to stop in Taiwan. Pelosi didn't listen to them. Now, that I'm clear about. It is simply wrong, a mistake and a show of weakness when you have somebody like Pelosi landing in Taiwan without the support of the United States, a government, without the support of the president of the United States, without a declaration of support from Congress or, or, or anybody else. It was her show. She did it on her own. She speaks for a lot of Americans, obviously, but it is not the United States policy today to recognize the independence of Taiwan as a potentially separate nation. And the Chinese government believes that having a high-ranking official come and meet with the political officials, the high-ranking officials of Taiwan, constitutes a slight recognition maybe of their independence. You know, this diplomatic game is awfully hard to follow with its subtleties. But the one thing is clear that the United States should never speak with a divided voice. Um, You know, I remember uh, I was there when Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel, at the request of the United States Congress, the invitation of the United States Congress, uh, was invited and accepted and made a fantastic speech in front of a joint session of the House and the Senate uh, against the uh, uh, Iran uh, deal and against um, the nuclearization of, of Iran. And um, President uh, Obama was furious at it. Many United States senators, including my former colleague Liz Warren, refused to attend. I told her that I would no longer ever support her. She would attend Castro. Uh, She would attend a speech by dictators, but she wouldn't attend a speech by the Prime Minister of Israel. I actually sat in the front row with Elie Wiesel and with um, uh, Sarah Netanyahu and with Mrs. Wiesel. And um, I loved the speech. Uh, there was a lot of controversy. Should uh, uh, a prime minister of another country accept the invitation of the House of Representatives that was not approved of by the president of the United States? I think the answer was yes, because the House of Representatives is a separate and equal institution. Equal, equal, equal. Hard to believe. But under the Constitution, the legislature is equal to the president, certainly not in power. Uh, in actuality and equal to the judiciary the judiciary is called the least dangerous branch it is the weakest branch except when it flexes its muscles like in the last weeks in june when it rendered so many important decisions about guns and uh, abortion and uh, climate control and and other issues but uh, pelosi had the right to do it was she right to do it is the question Uh, trump had the right i'm sorry. President Biden had the right to uh, disagree with her, but was he right to publicly uh, disagree with her? I think the end result is not good. The end result is that uh, it shows China that the United States administration, the current administration, is divided over how to deal with Taiwan. Taiwan has been a big issue for Nancy Pelosi for many years. I understand that. And she has the right to do what she wants as the leader of half of one of the branches of the government. But it would have been so much better if they had achieved a negotiated resolution between the executive and the legislative branch that would have permitted us to speak with uh, one, one voice. Look, Why do I support the two-state solution? I, I support it. Uh, and there's two words for the reason. And that is Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong was a British protectorate. I've been there on a number of occasions. It's a great, great city, wonderful place, Um, democratic, um, open, uh, free press, free speech. And then China was allowed to take it over. And it promised. It promised. No, no, it wasn't going to turn Hong Kong into just another part of China with repression and uh, denial of civil liberties and due process and free speech. No, it wasn't going to do that. It did it. It did it. I had dinner with a friend the other night who had spent 30 years in Hong Kong with his family, with his children, loved it, and now had to leave because he didn't have any freedom. He didn't want to bring his children up in a repressive uh, regime like China. Hong Kong has now become part of China. And I don't think anybody should want to see Taiwan become part of current China. Oh, they'll make all kinds of promises. Oh, we'll keep it independent. We'll make it like a separate state within the federal government, but the Chinese government is not federal. And it didn't do that to Hong Kong in Hong Kong. It imposed its communist totalitarianism on the wonderful people of Hong Kong. You know, the Chinese people i have had a lot of dealings uh, with with China over the years. I've been there, went there for the first time in 1979. I was one of the first people uh, from the West to go there. I was sent there by Ted Kennedy, my friend, Senator Ted Kennedy. Who wanted me to look into the human rights issues that were growing up, uh, the democracy wall? I went there with my son Elon, and went back again. Lectured at um, a number of Chinese um, uh, universities, and I'll tell you an interesting story about the schizophrenia of uh, many Chinese um, intellectuals and business people. So. Uh, because I was a guest of the University of Beijing Law School, they assigned me their very, very best top student to be my guide. He was just absolutely wonderful, brilliant, brilliant guy. He got, got to know him. We were there for, you know, lecturing for uh, over a week. Um, and at the end, I, I, I said to him, uh, so what are your ambitions? What are your goals? He was you know, 22 or 23 years old. He said, I have two ambitions. Number one, I want to be invited to become a member of the Communist Party. Neither of my parents were invited to be a member of the Communist Party because they're ordinary working people. But I'm a lawyer. So I hope to be invited to become a member of the Communist Party. And number two, I would like to become a merges and acquisition partner at Skadden Arps in New York, which is probably one of the most prominent merges and acquisition capitalist firms uh, in the world. And so that was the ambivalence. That was the schizophrenia communist on the one hand, a capitalist on the other hand, and that's been what's going on in China now over the past uh, more than a decade. Um, Internally, they're communist. uh, When it comes to competing with the United States and other countries, they're as capitalist as anybody gets. And um, I actually made a speech a few years ago in China where I said you can't have it both ways. If you want to become part of the capitalist free market nations of the world, you're going to have to pass laws, you're going to have to make it possible for people to invest there and know that they can get due process if something goes wrong. And once you establish the rule of law for business, it will spread to individuals, it will spread. Well, that hasn't quite happened. Um, uh, Yes, they have rules. And yes, a lot of American companies do invest in China, although I know some that won't go near it, because the Chinese courts are obviously not real courts. Um, when they do go and do business in China, they have arbitration, binding arbitration clauses where every dispute is resolved by some European arbitration committee, which everybody uh, uh, agrees to. But the, the rule of law hasn't really caught on either for business or for um, uh, democracy within the country. For a while, it looked like it might. There was a period of time. And Hong Kong was part of it, where it looked like Hong Kong may have an influence on Changshu and on Beijing and, and some of the other cities. But now, under the relatively new leader of China, who is brilliant and tough, um, the uh, trend seems to be moving the opposite direction. That is, Hong Kong is becoming subordinate in its rule of law approach to uh, China itself and its totalitarian communist approach. So what should the United States policy be toward, uh, toward uh, China? Um, you know, every administration uh, has a different policy. There hasn't been a consistent policy in general. Remember when I was growing up, um, I used to debate in high school, should red China be admitted to the UN? That was the big debate. Should red China be admitted to the UN? In those days, China had a role in the UN, but China was represented by Taiwan. Um, But we debated, should China be admitted to the UN? And you'll remember that Kissinger arranged for Nixon to go to China. Um, We were at Stanford at the time, at the Center for Advanced Study of Behavioral Sciences. And so we saw uh, a couple of the famous ping pong matches between the Chinese and Stanford. They weren't really matches because the Chinese so we so overmatched uh, in table tennis and ping pong. They're the best in the world. Um, but that was the, the ping pong diplomacy, the Kissinger visit, the Nixon visit. They even made an opera out of it, Nixon in China. Pretty good, pretty good opera by a guy who's written good operas and not so good operas. But this one was a pretty good one, Nixon in China. So what happened is we totally switched our policy. Taiwan is no longer uh, recognized by much of the world, and China is China is not only in the UN, it's in the Security Council, it has a veto. Um, so from not even being in the UN to being one of the big, you know, handful of countries that can determine policy and veto other policies, that happened. And so the American policy now is one China, uh, and that one China is a repressive country. I just don't think the United States can uh, continue to argue that ultimately China should have the power, the right, to take over Taiwan and turn it into a tyranny. It would be one of the first times that the United States has ever done that. Well, you might say they did it when they pressured Israel to end the occupation of the Gaza Strip. It turned it from an occupied country, briefly to a country ruled by the Palestinian Authority. Then there was a coup where many Palestinians uh, were murdered, and it became a Hamas uh, tyranny with the support, essentially, or the pressure of the United States. So we made that mistake once. Uh, I don't think we want to make it again about China. But that doesn't answer the hard question. And the hard question is, what would happen if China had a military attack. And the United States policy is, we're not going to tell you. Well, Biden says, we'll tell you. The White House says, no, he didn't really tell you. Uh, The official policy is studied ambiguity, uh, strategic ambiguity. So China, you don't know what the United States will do. Maybe we'll respond militarily. Maybe we won't. And since you don't want to risk it, you shouldn't attack militarily. Well, I have to tell you, if I was One of Chinese leaders, I would take that as such a sign of of weakness. And I hope we didn't encourage and provoke some kind of a military action uh, from China. Experts tell me, and I know they said it publicly, that eventually uh, China will lose patience and will militarily take over Taiwan, unless the threat of a military attack on Taiwan will bring Taiwan to a situation where it will agree to become part of China with certain conditions. That's always a possibility, but I think they're going to learn the lesson from Hong Kong. That's what Hong Kong did. Um, It was not, I mean, it was part of China. It was territorially not connected to China. It too is separated by water like Taiwan, but it's regarded as part of China proper. What that means I don't know, countries change geography all the time, and there are independence movements all the time that we recognize breakaway provinces, breakaway countries. We're more likely to recognize the Russian occupation of parts of Ukraine um, than probably we would be to recognize uh, the independence of Taiwan. So we're not going there. And so I suspect during my lifetime and probably during some of your lifetimes out there, we're gonna to continue to see the status quo, which is unclear, which is uncertain, which is um, uh, ambivalent. Um, you know, in practice, Taiwan is a separate country. They have elections, they have their own economy, a good economy. Uh, apparently the best food um, in all of, of China is on, on Taiwan, and that's a big deal for me. I don't wanna ever lose that. Um, But um, if China doesn't invade, it will maintain the status quo. It will threaten invasion. If China does invade, we just don't know what will happen. Or if China has like a partial invasion, um, like Russia uh, started to do in Ukraine. And then, of course, they moved uh, west. Uh, So, you know, this is a story that hasn't come to an end yet. And as to the question, did Pelosi do the right thing, I leave that up to you. As to the question, did Biden do the right thing, I leave that up to you. But let me tell you that between the two of them, they did the wrong thing. It was not good for America. It was not good for uh, Taiwan. It was not good for world peace, for the Speaker of the House of Representatives uh, to do one thing and the President of the United States, members of the same party, um, to uh, essentially criticize it and and put pressure on her not to do the right thing. So this is a mess, and it's a mess within the Democratic Party, and it's going to once again contribute to the notion that the Democrats are good domestically and they're terrible in terms of foreign policy. Uh, You know my views on President Obama. I think he was a very good domestic president. I think Obamacare is one of the greatest contributions to equality and to the quality of medical care of any president and I think he was the worst foreign policy president in modern uh, history. And the only competitions he has is from other Democrats. Uh, Jimmy Carter was, if not the worst, the second worst uh, foreign policy president in American history. The Democrats have to get their foreign policy together and they don't. Uh, They are very weak on foreign policy, which is why people like my brother-in-law, who was a liberal Democrat and who favors a woman's right to have abortion, gay rights, climate control, can't vote for the Democrats. He says foreign policy is more important, and the Republicans are better at foreign policy than the Democrats. That's that's hard to quarrel with when you compare one of the worst presidents, President Nixon, and his foreign policy, which was quite good uh, up to a point. Obviously, Cambodia the Vietnam War weren't particularly good, but the China policy, the enduring policy, uh, was quite good. So, uh, I'm going to continue to be uh, ambivalent. Uh, I'm going to vote for Democrats when I think they're the best. I'm going to vote for Republicans when I think they're the best. I have no loyalty to the Democratic Party and, uh, or to any party. Um, and I wish the Democratic Party were better at foreign policy. Uh, but they're not. And I think the Pelosi-Biden um, uh, split over Taiwan is uh, the best evidence of how mediocre the Democratic foreign policy is. Uh, is. All right, let's turn to some questions. Uh, Lots of positive uh, feedback on the uh, Bill Russell show. A lot of people just liked it. They liked the change of pace. They liked talking about basketball. They were surprised about how much I know about basketball. Believe me, I'm a maven on basketball. I know a lot about basketball, not mostly from having played it, but from having uh, had season tickets to the Celtics for more than 50 years and uh, for having watched uh, the Knicks before that. And uh, when I'm in Florida, I I go to see the Heat. So I I am a basketball fanatic. So you shouldn't be surprised that I know a lot about basketball and my friendship uh, with Bill Russell. A lot of people were appreciative of me sharing some stories about that as well. But not everybody. So here's one. Nothing against the intelligent Bill Russell. But what was the cerebral? What about the cerebral bill bradley chopped liver no he's not chopped liver you know he's a piece of chicken uh, a good nice piece of chicken compared to a filet mignon um i mean you can't compare bill bradley who i loved he was great i remember him at princeton uh of course i remember him when he played for the knicks and uh uh i remember that although he was a gentleman he was a pretty dirty player um but uh to compare <laughs> Bill Bradley with Bill Russell? Come on, it's like comparing Barack Obama uh, to Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you know, Obama was okay. Uh, so was, uh, so was uh, 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 Bill Bradley, but uh, no comparison to the GOAT, to, uh, to the greatest basketball player in the history of the sport. Uh, all right, next one. I disagree. Russell was great, but Michael Jordan was and is the GOAT. Okay. Uh, Another one like it. When Russell played, there were fewer teams. I would pick Jordan, but I thank you for your experience by actually seeing Russell play. Because of that, I think Jordan or Russell is a difficult debate. You can make the argument either way. I think that's right. They're they're totally different kinds of players. Um, uh, Bill Russell helped his team. Uh, I would say 80% of his contributions were made by others, that is, he scored a little bit. 15 points a game is not nothing, but it's not a lot. He blocked an enormous number of shots, but he basically brought to fruition the fast break in basketball, team defense. Um, when he was on the court, everything changed. Um, the other players that can contest his status as the GOAT were less team players and more individual players. And I think the NBA has become more of an individual fan sport. People love, love to see LeBron uh, charge the basket or some of these other new guys from uh, from Central and Eastern Europe who are so phenomenal. You know, having brought guys from Europe to the NBA has been a tremendous contribution to, to uh, basketball. Those of you who don't like immigrants, at least I hope you like the immigrants who play basketball for the United States. Uh, We're a country of immigrants. We ought to always welcome immigrants. And the NBA has uh, improved enormously by recruiting uh, players from countries uh, all over the world. Okay, this is a good one. Uh, Will Chamberlain never had the teammates Bill Russell did. You're absolutely right. But the question is, were these teammates independently great? Or did Russell make them great? When I think about like Tommy a great ball player, but not, you know, Tommy Heinsohn was, was made by, by Bill Russell and, and Bob Cousy in some ways was made by Bill Russell. They, they were both great players. And, you know, the rest of the team, uh, the Greers, and uh, they, I don't know that they would have been as good without having that center with the outlet passes and that defensive guy who could free them up to do different things. So, although I agree with your general sentiment that Will Chamberlain never had the team, Bill Russell did. The reason Bill Russell had that team is because of who he was. Dersh, go ahead. And our back. Brought to oh, the- and Red Auerbach, of course, who was our friend, and um, I used to go have uh, a pastrami sandwich with him before the before the games and. Um, I've actually smoked a couple of cigars with him um, and um, he was uh, just a great, a great guy and a great coach. And, you know, the combination of Russell and Auerbach, uh has never been seen before or since in basketball. And, you know, when uh, Arbach left the uh, Celtics, Russell took over, he was good. But when Russell went to some of the other teams to coach, he wasn't that great. Uh, so, you know, it's chemistry. It's, people getting together. It's the combination of, uh, you know, Russell with Kuzi and Russell with Havlicek. They only played together a short time. Um, but Russell with uh, some of these other, Heinzen and, I'm and, um, um, trying to remember the other guy, Lustikoff, um, he made them great. Um, and that was very important. Um, okay. Dersh, first time I ever agreed with you. Regarding the best basketball player and great human being in Celtics history, I especially enjoyed the classic Russell Chamberlain matchup. Uh, Almost regularly, Russell frustrated Chamberlain, and Wilt was vocal about it. Rumors had it that Bill was closer to 6'8. I think that's right. I've stood next to him on many occasions. I think he was closer to 6'8. I don't think he was 6'10. And of course, Chamberlain was not only 7'2, but You know, he had shoulders and arms and was built um, uh, amazingly. Uh, And Bill was so gracious, never gloating or running mouth. And that's true. You know, he never did the victory March. He he never, he was just quietly the winner. Uh, He enjoyed winning, but he was quietly the winning. Bill let his actions speak for himself. God must have needed a great defensive center. I like that. Um, uh, well, in my humble opinion, he got one, maybe the best ever. So I agree with that. When the NBA was debating going from two to three referees on the court during the games many years ago, it was Bill Russell that said, two or three refs. What's the difference? There's no limit to incompetence. So uh, the interesting thing is that Russell never complained about the refs. Red Arback complained, um, you know, uh was Rudolph. What was his name? Do uh, you remember his first name? Rudolph. He was the 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 referee. Mendy Rudolph. Rudolph. Yeah, that's who it was. Mendy Rudolph. And Red Arbeck used to scream at him. In fact, he got thrown out of a number of games. Uh, off court, Mendy Rudolph and Red Arback were great friends. But on the court, you made a call against Red Arback, You were going to get it. Red understood that if you protest the first call, maybe you'll get the second call. So even if the first call didn't warrant that kind of protest, in a tight game, if he needed the next call, he would scream and yell and curse and and maybe get thrown out of the game and maybe get the next want, maybe get want, the next call. This guy wants to know how Russell would have done against Shaq. Well, that's interesting. Uh, Russell and Shaq. Uh, remember again, Shaq was you know just just <laughs> a football player, um, and Russell you know was pretty thin early in his days. He was thin. He became more muscular later, you know, it's impossible to know. I, I love those kinds of stories. How would Mike Tyson have done against Muhammad Ali? I don't know. I mean, they were very different kind of players. I represented Mike Tyson. I know Mike Tyson. I represented Muhammad Ali. I may be the only person who both represented Muhammad Ali and um, and, and Mike Tyson. I think Muhammad Ali would have won. I don't think he would have knocked him out, but I think he would have won. I think he would have tired him out. Um, after all, you know, Mike Tyson did lose a couple of matches that he never should have lost, Douglas, and, and a, few other, a few other guys. So um, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, let's see. This is a guy. Okay, you're always going to get one guy like this. I never heard of Bill Russell, but hearing Dershowitz bring him up, I immediately said he's definitely a black guy. I ran a search of his name and voila, voila, what an idiot you are. What an idiot you are. Does it matter whether the guy was white or black? I would have said a lot of the same things about Larry Bird. Um, You don't judge a person based on, on their race. Now, you didn't have to look it up. If you listen to my show, I talked about how active he was in the civil rights movement, how much racism there was in Boston. And... I obviously clearly identified him as somebody who was an African-American. So no wallah from you. Uh, you're a jerk. And uh, and unfortunately, there are too many of you uh, out there. Um, OK, last one. Let a critic at the last word. I was with you until you told the story of Russell Neeling and then the politicization of sports. OK, um, I, I do have to get to one more. It may take us over. Um, that. And that is somebody did write to me and say, why did I say that the third stanza of the National Anthem is uh, racist? It's not. Well, let me read it to you when you make your own judgment. I I don't think it's overtly racist. What it does is it recognizes a reality of slavery back during 1812. The third stanza has um, their blood was washed out their foul footsteps pollution. He's talking about the British who were fighting against the patriotic Americans. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. Now, obviously, there was slavery at that time. And we know the British offered free slaves who fought against the United States. And some slaves, understandably, if I were a slave... And if I could get out of being a slave by fighting against a country that enslaved me, I'd probably do it. I don't think you can call that overt racism. You call it kind of being with the time, which was a racist time. He didn't do anything special to say anything negative about the slave. He 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 lumped them together with the hireling. Those were hired troops, the Hessians and people like people from foreign country, the two the two groups that were fighting with the British against the Americans. So it's it's a close question. But uh, and I said myself, I wouldn't kneel for the American uh, flag or the national anthem. But I respect Bill Russell for having shown his support for somebody and something he believed in. See you tomorrow.